Well, a man living in Budapest, Hungary, went to his rabbi complaining, my life is unbearable. Nine of us, nine of us live in a one-room house. What are we supposed to do? The rabbi thought deeply, as rabbis do. Take a goat into your house with you. The man thought the rabbi must not have heard him. Surely had lost his mind. But the rabbi insisted, do what I say and come back in a week. A week later, the man returns. As you can imagine, he is even more distraught. Cannot stand being in the house now. The goat is filthy. It stinks. It is eating and destroying everything in our house. What are we to do? The rabbi thinks deeply. Maybe you better go home and let the goat out. Come back in another week. The man returns the next week. He's absolutely gleeful. Oh, life is so good. There are only nine of us in the house now. Perspective is important, is it not? A different perspective. A different perspective can often change our attitudes. We must somehow begin to see the world as God does if we are to obey this psalm and give thanks to the Lord. You heard the refrain, oh, that people would give thanks to God. For his mighty deeds, his wonderful works. The number of hours of daylight are nearing their ebb here in the northern hemisphere. Night lengthen, lengthens as the cold air squeezes both the heat and the life from the land. Soon the snow will begin. And with it, a disease known as SAD, S-A-D, Seasonal Affective Disorder. These winter blues bring feelings of depression that may not lift until the uh, the spring sun. It is cold. It is dark. It is dreary. And we need a new perspective in order to give thanks. Verse 43 of our text says, If we are wise, we will observe, we will consider, we will understand what God is doing. We will see the love of God. Is God's abundant kindness evident at all in the winter snows? Well, according to the Census Bureau, there are 116 square miles in Omaha. That's in the official area that the city owns, that those of us who live in the city, rent our land back from them. 116 square miles. In an average year, there will be 30 inches of snow fall in Omaha. And 30 inches of snow is about 3 inches of water on average. Snow is puffy water, you understand. So it compresses down. 116 square miles is 3 billion 233,894,400 square feet. Over 3 billion square feet 
in Omaha. Water three inches deep. Three inches is a quarter of a foot, right? So you multiply the square feet by the number of feet high, and you find that covering Omaha with 30 inches of snow requires 808 million. 473,600 cubic feet of water. Now there are seven and a half gallons, seven and a half gallons in a cubic foot. A gallon of water weighs eight and a third pounds. That means that 50 billion, 509 million, 388 pounds of water will be dropped on Omaha this winter. More than 50 billion pounds of water. That's not including those of you who live in the outlying areas. That's just those of us who live in the city limits. More than 50 billion pounds of water. The maximum liftoff weight of a 747 jumbo jet fully loaded is 875,000 pounds. So that is 57,725 fully loaded jumbo jets set down upon the city limits of Omaha. That's a lot. Now think about where this water, where this snow came from, which your children will put in their mouths. <laughs> Before it began its journey, it was water in a pig's lagoon in western Nebraska. Before it began its journey, it was water washing over the rotting carcass of a deer that had been hit by a car on the side of a mountain in Denver, Colorado. Before it began its journey, it was water in an ocean of animal and industrial waste that would turn your stomach to know what is in there. But somehow God lifts 50 billion pounds of water out of its putrid surroundings and flies it all the way over here to Omaha to drop it on your daughter's waiting tongue. (laughs) Not all at once, though, does he? Because if she were to stick out her tongue and have a 747 land on it, it would not be good. Right, so he floats, he floats a mountain of water, cleaned and purified, and sets it down with the gentle touch of a Rembrandt, flakes large enough to fall through the atmosphere without evaporating, but small enough to delicately kiss your cheek. A change in perspective can turn a dreary day into cause for amazement and thanksgiving. William Shakespeare, in his play King Lear, has the king say this, sharper than a serpent's tooth is a thankless child. Sharper than a serpent's tooth is a thankless child. For those of us desperately seeking to tame our serpent offspring, you understand Lear's sentiment, don't you? A mother may labor for hours in the kitchen over the hot stove, and the father may rise two or three times during the meal to go and refill glasses of milk or 
get an extra little bit of food and not a peep of gratitude be offered. Sharper than a serpent's tooth is a thankless child. The bite hurts, does it not? When our own children, for whom we do so much, seem to appreciate it so little. Unfortunately, King Lear's curse may turn out to speak to more than simply our children. It may describe us. Scottish Presbyterian pastor David Dixon, writing in 1640, said this, There is no duty to which we are more dull or at which we are more awkward than the praise of God and thanksgiving unto him. Neither is there any duty for which we are in more need of being stirred up. There is no duty for which we are in more need of being stirred up. George Washington and the Congress in 1789 understood that they needed to stir up the people of America to giving thanks. Washington's first Thanksgiving proclamation reads, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and to humbly implore His protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country. President Bush has continued the tradition and uttered another Thanksgiving proclamation. And so we prepare today and this week for a national day of Thanksgiving. But what if we're not particularly thankful people? We are easily discouraged. Things do not always go the way we want or the way we plan. We may not appreciate God because, quite honestly, we may feel like He doesn't appreciate us the way He should. But that's the wrong perspective. God would have us bring a goat in the house, so to speak, and learn again thankfulness. So I've entitled today's message, A Holiday Test for Our Hearts. Like any exam or test, there are questions And there are answers. Some answers are wrong and some answers are right. We want to end up with the right answers. Not simply right answers that we can say because knowing the right answers without hearts transformed by them is maybe worse than not knowing the right answer. But we have to know the right answer and also ask God to conform us to it. So here are the questions in this exam. The first question is this, am I naturally thankful? That's your first exam question. Am I naturally thankful? Now, most people, I find, consider themselves basically grateful people, grateful for the blessings that they have received. But I'd like us to ask that question a little deeper and say, is our thanksgiving, is our gratitude more socially conditioned, or is it really 
the music of our hearts? Are our our hearts tuned toward giving thanks? Psalm 107 is written precisely because God looks at his people and he says, I have done amazing things, but you need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded to be thankful for the redemption I have provided. I've redeemed you from the desert. I've redeemed you from imprisonment. I've saved you out of sickness, out of sin, out of sorrow, out of the sea, out of suffering. All again and again, God continues to pour out his favor on his people. And yet the people are not grateful. Their hearts are not tuned to make that kind of music naturally. Their attitude is more like, well, it's more like ours, isn't it? What have you done for me lately? But if Israel had reason, according to God, to be thankful, (laughs) ought not we who claim to be Christians be even more thankful than Israel ought to have been? We have more reason than the church of the Old Testament. And yet, are we not quick to leave off thankfulness when God's providence includes a bit of a frown? I'd be the first to admit I'm not... I'm not quick to respond with thanksgiving when trials and troubles come my way. James tells me to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. But instead of counting it all joy, I tend to count it all misery and all suffering. When I was in a particularly difficult time in ministry, I was in Chicago. Things were going poorly at the church. I felt I had never met a group of people that so disliked me and disliked the Word of God. I called one of the elders at Harvest here in Omaha, a valued friend, a wise counselor. I told him about the struggles I was having. I felt like I was overwhelmed by the problems. I felt inadequate. And I said, Jim, I'm not sure I even know how to find God's will anymore. And I was considering leaving the ministry. And I just don't know what to do. I'm just not sure I know how to find God's will anymore. And Jim immediately said this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now that verse in that application is more than simply an exhortation to give thanks. It is, and Jim meant it this way, it is a reminder that when we are feeling full of doubt and despair and we do not know what to do, the place to begin where we benefit the most is in thanksgiving. When we are brought to give God thanks for what he has done, it clarifies the mind. It renews the thinking. It changes your heart. In order to think about this question, of whether I am naturally thankful. Romans 1.21 is a very important passage. It's a very important passage for us to study in order to pass the first question on our quiz. Am I naturally thankful? Paul in Romans, he begins as he does with most of his letters with an introductory hello and here I am and here you are and all of that. And then in verses 16 and 17, he tells them the theme of the letter. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. And as he says that, 
making that proclamation of this salvation that comes in the gospel. He is compelled to explain why we need salvation. What do we need saving from? Why do we need this salvation? And so he begins in verse 18 and says, well, we need saving from God's wrath because we are guilty. And that leads naturally to the question, what are we guilty of? What, what, what have we done wrong that we stand guilty before God? And I find it fascinating that when Paul is explaining, he says, he, he begins talking about why we're guilty and he says, one reason, one of the reasons that we stand guilty before God, one of the sure signs of our fallenness, one of the testimonies of the fact that we have a sin nature, that there's something wrong, it's bent in the wrong direction inside of us, is that we are not thankful. What a surprising answer. Listen to the text beginning at verse 18 of Romans 1. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For those of you who were here when we looked at Psalm 19 verses 1 to 6, that is what Paul is talking about there. He has read the scriptures. He's looked in the stars. He's seen the sermon that the heavens and earth proclaim the glory of God. He's heard that and he realizes everybody else does too. We are without excuse. Four, why are we without excuse? Because, he says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We are without excuse. Okay, so there it is. The, the whole universe is proclaiming the glory of God, calling people. And then Paul says, now here's, here's how we've responded. Here's why we were guilty. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. Everybody hears the sermon, and yet the natural response of our hearts is not to give thanks to God. Now, maybe you imagine that God is being a little severe there in Romans 1.21 where he says that we are guilty and deserve damnation. Maybe you think people aren't that ungrateful. Most people are pretty grateful people. And yet, listen to some modern thinkers on this subject. Joseph Stalin, gratitude is a sickness suffered by dogs. Dorothy Parker was in Chicago, a critic for Vogue and Vanity Fair. Gratitude, the meanest and most sniveling attribute in the world. William Faulkner, the famous Southern writer, Maybe the only thing worse than having to give gratitude constantly is having to accept it. See, I think the Bible is correct. Oh, yes, there are times when social customs, social pressures cause us to, to say thanks because it advances our career or it helps smooth the wheels of commerce. But I think the Bible is accurate when it says, coming out of the womb, we are naturally ungrateful people. We owe God infinite thanks. But as Elizabeth Barrett Browning penned in her poem, this race is never grateful. From the first, 
One fills their cup at supper with pure wine, which they give back at cross time on a sponge in bitter vinegar. That's the condition of our hearts. Now, how might this thankfulness manifest itself in our lives? Well, one way is that we may never thank God for the mercies we have received. Life and health, water and food, clothing and housing, friends and family, God's revelation and God's redemption. Has God heard your voice singing out praise and thanksgiving to Him? Not simply, though, in our failure to give thanks for His many mercies, but we often as people dwell more on what we don't have than on what we do. Oh, yes, I have bread, but I don't have any fish. Or I have fish, but I don't have any cucumbers and leeks. Yes, I have some cash, but I'm not wealthy. I have a car, but it's not new. I have a computer, but it's not a Macintosh. (laughs) You're welcome, Mike. Many times, instead of joyfully and and full of thanksgiving, God has heard our voices. But all he hears is sorrow for what I lack. And there's a third way that our thankfulness manifests itself. We fret too much over our ills. As I've told you in James, the scriptures insist that affliction is for our good. Does God ever hear your voice in thankfulness for your troubles? I've told you this illustration before, but I think it's good enough to repeat. Pastor Matthew Henry was robbed one day. And the next morning when he did his devotions and wrote in his diary, this is what he wrote, Let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took all that I had, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Thankfulness, even in the midst of affliction. Well, we could list other manifestations, but instead, let's just note this. If we are to learn the joy and the contentment of becoming thankful people, we must begin by confessing that we have a heart problem, a lack of thankfulness, and we must ask forgiveness because we are by nature ungrateful. Then second question on your exam is this, should I be thankful? Should we be thankful people? Or should we agree with some of those contemporary authors who said thankfulness is such a terrible thing? Well, this psalm, Psalm 107, seems to command thanksgiving, not to merely suggest it, but to order it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Additionally, there are are at least 23 other psalms that mention thanksgiving. We've read several of them in the worship service, like Psalm 30, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 79, we the, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you. Genuine thanksgiving characterizes Jesus' prayers. Paul, who wrote 13 letters, mentions giving thanks 45 different times in those 13 letters, the book of Revelation, which, for whatever else it is, <laughs> it's certainly significant in that it is a, uh, a description of what worship looks like in heaven. 
it says a number of times that thanksgiving is one of the main characteristics of worship in the presence of God. Revelation 7 is an example. Here's a verse from Revelation 11. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. I've already referenced 1 Thessalonians 5. It commands us. It tells us that God's will is that you give thanks in whatever circumstances you have. Ephesians 5 says that here's how you know if you're filled with the Spirit. It produces in you giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Should we be thankful people? Should we be thankful people? Look at Psalm 107 verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say it. Have you been redeemed from destruction and damnation? Have you been saved from sin and sickness and sorrow? Are you a believer? Then say so. Give thanks to the Lord. Now, in order to obey this commandment, in order to do what the Scriptures say, you must realize that thankfulness is both an attitude and an action. Since we're coming up on the gift-giving season, let me especially speak to you kids because I've noticed that sometimes children are not grateful if the gift they get is not what they wanted, right? You open the present, and Grandmama has given you another pair of woolen underwear. (laughs) You're not immediately thankful, right? And so your parents, you know how they do, they kind of, what do you say? What do you say? I hate this. <laughs> That's not the right answer. You know what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say thank you. The problem is, if we're not careful, what we do is we create hypocrites. Because the children are thinking in their mind, I'm the center of the universe. I don't like the gift. I'm not grateful. But I have to say I'm grateful anyway. And the problem is, you haven't preached the gospel to your kids, right? Because the kids are fundamentally me-centered. I'm the center of the universe. The gospel says you get to be freed from that slavery of making yourself the center of the universe. And God comes in and says you get to be other-oriented like he is. You get to care about others first. So we don't just say to our children, yes, there is a place to say to your kids, you have to learn to say thank you. But more important even than that, is when they fail to say thank you, do not immediately say, now what do you say? But say immediately, what's going on in the heart? Because what's going on in the heart is that I'm the center. Instead, the children, our children, just like you and I have to be taught this, have to be taught that the key is not my needs are central, but her, grandmama's needs are important. Here is someone who has done something. Has she done something kind? Has she done something for me? Has she thought about my needs? Yes. Well, I can be thankful for that. It doesn't matter whether I like the present because I don't have anything to do with it. It's all about her. So thankfulness is an attitude, and our perspective must change. Right? You need to get a goat into the bedroom of your children's life in order that their perspective would change. It's an attitude, but... It's not merely an attitude, is it? An attitude by itself is not enough. Suppose tomorrow is your, mo- your, your mother, your wife's birthday. Suppose tomorrow is your wife's birthday. 
You arrange for babysitting. You make reservations at a fine restaurant. You spend hours shopping for the perfect gift. You leave work early, stop by the flower shop, pick up flowers, arrive home, surprise your wife with the special evening you have planned. Some of you men are, I can see it on your faces. You're thinking, I would have never thought of that. You can just It's just like the concierge. Just put your tip right here in the glass. Probably the wives are going to be the ones giving me the tip. But suppose you do all of this and your wife says nothing. You assume she is grateful for your attention to every detail, but she never says anything. She never utters a word of appreciation. She does not show any gratitude. She does not even say, at least you did better than last year. Now, if you were treated that way, husbands, you would not be happy with that. You would be probably angry because we expect others to vocalize thanksgiving. We expect it from others. So, in answer to question two, should we be thankful people, let me give you four reasons why we ought to be. First, it is commanded. It is commanded. I've shown you that in the Scriptures. Second, we have ample reasons to be. Verse 7, give thanks to the Lord. I mean, uh, Psalm 107, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. There's the command. For he is good, his mercy endures forever. There is the reason God has been amply good to you. Third, you demand it from others. That's the argument, by the way, of Romans chapter 2, when Paul says, how do I, Paul, Paul is asking a rhetorical question. He says, how do I know every one of us has the law written on our heart? He says, because I look at how you treat other people. And if they do not express thanksgiving, you are angry. But you do not express thanksgiving to God. Therefore, you've proven the law is written there. You know it's the right response because you demand it from others. And what you demand from others, you do not give. We demand it from others. But then fourth, it's our joy. It's the only thing that will make you happy if you are a believer. Did you hear about the farmer who was known for his complaining? A neighbor came by the farmer's uh, ranch, and as he drove down the path leading up to the barn. He, he's amazed. He says, this is the best uh, harvest, the best whatever, crop, thank you, the best crop that you've ever had. This is fantastic. He says that to the farmer. You must be delighted with this year's harvest. And the farmer says, <clears throat> you know, he's kind of those, one of those old crotchety guys. Well, yeah, it does look like the best I've ever had, but a bumper crop like that is awfully hard on the soil. You have a bumper crop of God's blessings on you. But if you fail to have a heart of gratitude, you will end up like that farmer, old and bitter before your time. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Question three. Question one, am I naturally thankful? Uh, No. Question two, should I be? Yes. Question three, How do we get the transition between those? Where do I get a thankful heart if it's not naturally in me? I see one of the places where the Bible teaches the answer to that in an interaction Jesus had with some lepers. Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem. On the way, he had to pass between Samaria and Galilee. As he walked through one of the small villages, ten lepers had heard that he was coming. They gathered together and said, if anyone is going to help us, it must be this Jesus fellow. We have heard the stories. We know the reports. 
He is a miracle worker. He can do it. Now, they were not allowed to come near to Jesus, nor would they, because they were considered unclean. So they stood at a distance, and like Horton hears a who, they all start screaming together, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. Help us. Jesus hears their voices rising from the den, and he says to them, Luke 17, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was there only one found who would return and give praise to God? No one except this foreigner. And he said, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The Greek word there is your faith has saved you. Most of our English translations say made you well because people have a hard time understanding what this has to do with salvation. But it's really quite important. Returning and giving thanks to Christ did not save him. His faith saved him, and as a result, he could not help coming back and giving thanks to Christ because he knew that's where his healing came from. He knew it would be his joy to give God praise. He knew because God had saved him that he had to come and give thanks to him. A thankful heart comes from the work of God's grace in our lives. It comes from having been saved. It is a characteristic of those who are, as Psalm 107 says over and over, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Earlier we read in Romans 1 and we heard Paul admit that there was a good news of salvation. The good news is that God will do a supernatural work and change us into thankful people. Question four on your exam. How do I become thankful? I'm not naturally. I ought to be. The bridge between the two is a supernatural work of God. What is my responsibility in this? How do I become thankful? Well, if we read through the whole of the Bible, we find Psalms like 107 that are stirring us up, trying to convince us to be thankful people. Because all true believers, the Bible knows, God knows, if you're a true Christian, you're going to enjoy nothing more than giving thanks to God. So how do we find this happiness that comes from being thankful people? First, six steps. Here's the first. Confess in gratitude and ask for the new heart. We begin by agreeing with God. Yes, God, you're correct. I am not naturally grateful. Now, that's going to be hard for some of us because we're pretty, we pretty much are pride ourselves on being thankful people. We write thank you notes. We show appreciation. And it's important that you realize the answer is not to grit your teeth and say, well, it's almost January. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution in 2007. I am going to be a more grateful people because that's beginning with myself. The answer is to go to God. Jesus did not die. Listen, Jesus did not die so that you could feel guilty for your past ingratitude and promise to do better. Jesus did not die 
so that you could feel guilty for your past ingratitude and promise to do better. Jesus died because you cannot do better. You have it not within you. Thankfulness like that is not within us. He alone is perfectly thankful. And so the scriptures tell us apart from him, you can do no good work, including be thankful people. Yes, you may be able to say the words, but the words will not match what's going on in your heart. And so we must begin by agreeing with him, this is not in me. I need a different spirit. I need a spirit of thankfulness. Christ, will you not come and save and sanctify me? Will you not give me a new and thankful disposition? Then second, believe God's promise. Believe the promise of Jesus to make you thankful. You do not postpone obedience until you feel like obeying because we obey from faith and not from our feelings. A new heart is guaranteed you in the new covenant. God says, if you will ask me, I will give you a new heart. So believe him, take him at his word, and act it out. Begin giving thanks. Believe this promise and fulfill it. Then third, you can begin to thank God for his goodness and grace. Talking about being thankful is not enough. And feeling guilty is not acceptable. So what does the scripture say here in Psalm 107? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You actually have to say it. (laughs) You're going to actually have to speak the words. Say, God, I thank you for this. Now, it may seem awkward to some of us at first, but it will become easier and even more enjoyable as you spend more time in thanksgiving. And many of us, considering how wealthy and well-off we are, We also need to realize thanksgiving is not merely what we express with our mouth, but it needs to be the acts of our lives too. Puritan pastor John Flavel, talking talking to his congregation on their need to give thanks to God by their acts of mercy, said this, Think not what God bestows upon you is wholly for your own use, but honor God with your mercies by clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, especially such as are godly. This is a due improvement of your estates. Thus you may make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. How little do we consider what praise, what glory we may occasion this way from others to the name of God. Yes, there is an aspect of giving thanks that's saying it. It's also doing it showing our thankfulness in acts of mercy. Fourth, find small blessings over which to give thanks. I've tried to help you fulfill Psalm 107, verse 43, thinking about water and snow. But There's a whole universe of things which if you will think deeply about, your hearts will be drawn out to gratitude to God. Fifth, meditate on the freedom from ingratitude which will be yours in heaven. The opposite of thankfulness is slavery to dissatisfaction. The opposite of thankfulness is slavery to dissatisfaction. If we think, if the way we look at the world is say to ourselves, God, what have you done for me lately? I I expect more from you. You owe me more. You will never be happy with what you have. 
But when you arrive in heaven, such discontent will no longer cling to you. You will finally know that every circumstance, you will believe that every event which has come into your life has been for your good. We, we, we went to, Helen and I went to the uh, conference at Bethlehem Baptist Church a couple of years ago on suffering. And uh, Joni Erickson Tata's testimony was fantastic as she explained how when she went to heaven, she, she hoped she could take her wheelchair with her. She's paralyzed and from the neck down and, and cannot get out of her wheelchair. She said, I hope I get to take my wheelchair with me because I know that there I will be able to thank God perfectly because this has been for my good. And then I will turn to him and say, cast it into hell. I never want to see it again. <laughs> but that's exactly what will be. When you get to heaven, no more ingratitude will cling to your soul and enslave you to dissatisfaction. Meditate on the freedom to give thanks that will be yours when you are in the presence of God. And then, sixth, begin to give thanks even in times of trouble. Trouble. Gratitude is smothered by difficulty, is it not? Life is hard. And, and true gratitude is not um, what the Barbie dolls did in Toy Story 2. My cheeks are tired. I hurt from smiling so much. <laughs> That's not gratitude. It's not a plastic smile. But it is trust in God's goodness and His love. And you will learn thanksgiving at the cross. Because there you will see that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for you. And if He has done that, He will obviously graciously give you all other good things. God is for you. Who could be against you? What can separate you from the love of Christ? In all things, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels, nor demons, nor things above, or things in the depth, or anything in creation can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So maybe if we could modify the man, the illustration that the rabbi gave at the beginning and say, don't bring a goat into your room. Bring a cross. It will change your perspective. No longer will trouble be a sign to you of God's disfavor and a cause for grumbling. It will be the assurance of God's love and the guarantee to you that all things work together for good. Harry Ironside was a pastor in Chicago in the early 1900s. He preached at the famous Moody Church in downtown Chicago. One day he was sitting at a diner, just getting ready to start his lunch. It was a crowded restaurant. There was not a seat available except at his little table where he sat. There was another chair. A man came up and asked if he could share the table with Ironside. Ironside said, sure, welcomed him. The man sat down. As was Pastor Ironside's custom, he bowed his head in prayer when he opened his eyes and looked up, the man said, Do you have a headache? Uh, no, no, I don't. Something wrong with your food? 
Ironside said, no, I, I was simply giving thanks to God before I ate. That's, that's my habit. That's what I do. The man said, oh, you're one of those, are you? Yeah, that's a waste of time. I found out I have to earn my money by the sweat of my brow. And I don't have to give thanks to anyone when I get ready to eat. I just start right in. And Ironside said, oh, you're one of those, are you? You're just like my dog. He does that too. Father God, we don't want to be like the animals, deaf and dumb, tongues stuck in our mouths and our passions and our appetites driving us to gobble down the world that you have made without a thought of gratitude. We know that unlike the animals, we have been created in your image, in the image of Jesus Christ the Lord who was thankful in all things. Rescue us, O Lord, from ungrateful hearts. Lift us out of the mire of our fallen nature and set us on the high mountain. Make our feet to stand on a firm place whereby we might not only give thanks, but we might yell it from the mountaintops. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Give thanks to the Lord. Make that the tune, the music of our hearts. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.